you are uh, happy in the Lord tonight? All right, let's stand together. I'm going to get you to read a verse with me. And we're going to look tonight at the seven cries from the cross. I've never taught this, and this has really fascinated me. Uh, how many of you realize Jesus never wasted a syllable? I mean, not a syllable. All right. Um, you know, I want to just go down to the first verse we're going to read, and then I'll go back up and go over what we're going to talk about at the beginning. But read this with me, would you? First, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. A prayer of forgiveness. Now, let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your blessing tonight on the Word of God. And I pray in the name of Jesus, speak to us, minister to us, and help these words to change our lives. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Now, will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, change me tonight. Change my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good tonight. You better perk up and listen. Um, let me just kind of open up a little bit here. A dying man doesn't talk about the weather or other trivialities. You know, as a pastor of a very long time now, almost a quarter of a century, I've prayed over a lot of people who are leaving this world, and they don't talk about the weather. They talk about what is most on their hearts, eternal things, uh, God, the things that matter over eternity. And so this is what was on Jesus' mind. As Jesus hung dying on the cross, he uttered seven things. Now these seven last sayings of Jesus reveal seven of his works as Messiah. Here's what they reveal. Seven of his works as Messiah. They address seven different kinds of relationships, and we're going to look at those, and seven duties of man, of you and me. So every time he uttered something from the cross, and you're not going to find it in one of the Gospels, you'll find it in all four. Uh, one recorded something that another one didn't, but when you put them all together, there were seven sayings. Now, I think it's interesting that in Bible numerology, the number for God is three, the number for man is six. That's why Mark of the Beast or the Antichrist is 666, the number for man. Uh, the number for completion is seven, and the number for new beginnings is eight. I find it very interesting, not that I'm huge on Bible numerology, like anything else you can get off on a tangent with that, but I think it's interesting that Jesus uttered seven things from the cross, the number for completion. His cross was a completed work. Hebrews makes it very clear. Nothing needs to be added to it, and you don't take anything from it. His work on the cross was absolutely perfect and complete. So these last sayings of Jesus, let me just say it again, reveal seven aspects of his work as Messiah, seven different kinds of relationships that we all are going to be involved in, and seven duties of man. Now, what I want to do is I want to take two a week. And I'm either going to take three weeks with this, but if we, if we need to stretch it, we'll, we'll go four. But I'm going to deal with at least two a week of the works as Messiah that were revealed in what he said, and two relationships that we're going to be involved in as people, and two duties that God's called all of us to. So, we read the first one. 
The first utterance of Jesus from the cross was, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. A prayer of forgiveness. Now, let's just go ahead and go through all of them so we can get an idea of what they are. Are you ready? So read these with me. Next, he said, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise, a promise of eternal life. Third, he said, dear woman, here is your son, and here is your mother, a gift of care and family protection. He pointed to his mother, Mary, and said, there's your son, John. And he pointed to John and said, there's your mother, my mother, Mary. Now, here's the fourth one. When his life was almost over, Jesus said, what, everybody? I am thirsty, an admission of physical need, just like any person. Now, fifth, he uttered a cry of desolation. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon called this cry the most awful words that ever fell from the lips of man, expressing the quintessence or the ultimate of exceeding agony. Jesus said, let's read it together, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sixth came his declaration of completion. Can you say it with me? It is finished. Paul said the same thing, didn't he? I have finished my course. Now, finally, Jesus said, let's read it, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And these were words of submission and surrender. Now, these seven famous last words, to me, are very striking. They touch on the full range of life issues. Isn't that amazing? Seven simple sayings touch on the full range of life issues. Even on the cross, Jesus' words are rich in their meaning and broad in their application. Absolutely. Given the way that he was suffering, and we'll never know, we'll never know the level of his suffering. It's amazing that Jesus was able to express himself so clearly and so simply that he was even able to think about somebody else. He thought about the thief on the cross, thought about his mother, thought about John, thought about those who were crucifying him. I don't know about y'all, but you put me on a cross, I'm a big baby. It's all about me. And I'm going to be telling the whole world how much I'm suffering. Amen? I'm not going to be hanging on that cross worrying about some thief I never met. I like to think I'd think about my mother, but I'd be asking her to climb up there and help me. Okay? So we've got to get a hold of Jesus was so selfless. It's amazing. He was such a selfless person. Now, these seven short sentences, the dying words of a dying man, give eloquent testimony to Jesus' wisdom and grace. Now, in summary, let's read these out loud. Let's, let's just go over the seven words from the cross one more time. Can you read it with me? The word of forgiveness, the word of salvation, the word of affection, the word of anguish, the word of suffering, the word of victory, and the word of contentment. Now, those are the seven words, the seven sayings of Jesus in a nutshell. Now, I want to take each one of these phrases and look at the work of Jesus Christ as Messiah. I want to look at the life relationship that it touches on, and I want to look at the duty it leaves us with. Now, here is the very first work of Jesus 
as the Messiah. Here it is. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And I got to tell you, that just blows my mind because if they're hanging me on the cross, I assume they know what they're doing. But Jesus said, they don't really know what they're doing. And how often do people hurt you and me and we want to chalk it up and we want to blame it on them and point a finger at them. But you know what? A lot of the time they don't know what they're doing. They don't know they're being a tool of the enemy. They don't know they're speaking out of the flesh. They don't know. Jesus looked at this crowd that had just a week before been saying Hosanna to him, welcoming him into the city of Jerusalem as he rode in on a donkey, praising him. The same faces have now turned on him. And Jesus said, they don't know what they're doing. Father, I'm praying for them. Forgive them. Now, this first word shows us Jesus as an intercessor, as somebody who prays. This is his work. Did you know that? It is Jesus' work to pray. We notice that when he says, Father, forgive them, he's offering a prayer for his enemies that they will be forgiven by God. In that agony of body and soul, he prays that they are forgiven by God. And by doing that, he sets us an example. Now, I got to tell you, among the, among the difficult commands of Jesus, and there are several that I could name to you that I think are very hard sayings. This one, praying for your enemies, has got to be at the top of the list. How many of you can agree with that? It doesn't make sense in the flesh to pray for an enemy. Your flesh naturally wants to retaliate and take vengeance and, and get revenge. It doesn't come natural. I think apart from the Holy Ghost and apart from the Word of God and apart from the influence of Jesus, virtually nobody on the planet would pray for an enemy. It doesn't make any sense. How many of you have ever had a real enemy? Let me see. In your family, at work, somebody just didn't like you, hated you, wanted to see you come down. Come on, let me see. How easy was it to say, Lord, bless them? Huh? Come on. That doesn't come natural. It doesn't want to come out of your mouth. But that's what Jesus did. I got to tell you, it's amazing to me what he did from the cross. They killed him, hung him on that tree for nothing. Now, I want you to look at what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Love them. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. Now, that's another version. The New King James or the King James says, do good to those that hate you, bless those that curse you. And pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. So you got haters and cursers and persecutors. And what does Jesus do? He gives us what I like to call a Teflon response. You know, when you read the, the, the teachings of Jesus on how to handle enemies and how to handle life, Jesus never focused on the action that hurt you. Never. Jesus always focuses on 
your response. He never focuses on what somebody, some dirty dog did to you. He focuses on your response. Look what he says. He's not focusing on the cursor. He's saying, here's a cursor. You bless him. He's not focusing on the hater. He says, you do good to them. He's not focusing on the persecutor. He's saying, you pray for them. Why do I call it the Teflon response? You remember when the Teflon pan came in? No muss, no fuss, no butter, no margarine, no oil. Because you could flip that egg without putting anything in it because of the Teflon. It was no stick. And that's what Jesus taught when dealing with people. He taught us how to not let it stick. Are you all there? That it would slide off of you and not stick. And the only way, the only way to bring that about is to respond the way he said. If you don't respond the way that he said, it's going to stick and stick and stick and stick you and stick you and stick you and stick you as long as you want to let it stick you. And you may think it really doesn't matter much. Kathy, last night, sticks her foot right in my face and she says, is there something sticking in the bottom of my foot? And I said, well, let me get the magnifying glass. And I, I said, there's nothing there. I'm sure there's something there. And then finally I found this little teeny little splinter-like thing. Amazing. That little teeny thing was affecting this whole woman. And we think little offenses aren't going to affect us. But Jesus said, if you don't do what I did in the worst of situations, we'll never be in a worse situation than he was on the cross. You can't match that. Crucified when all you did was good. The worst instrument of torture known to the ancient world. There he hangs. And yet he prayed for them. Why? Because he said, I don't want to let this offense stick. You can get stuck with an offense, and I'll tell you, you can pick up somebody else's offense. You know what it is to pick up somebody else's offense? That's like if I pulled the splinter out of her foot and stuck it in my foot. Now we can both be stuck together. We can both walk around limping. I'll pick up your offense for you. You mean they did that to you? I'll pick up your offense. And you pick up somebody else's offense, and you end up just as offended as they are. You're walking around carrying attitude because you picked up somebody else's offense. There's a splinter in your foot that's there because it was first in their foot. And now you've got it. And the only way to get it out is to do what he did. Bless the cursors, do good to the haters, pray for the persecutors. It's not easy to do, but I'll guarantee you if you can do it, it's, then the offense slides off. Amen? Look what Jesus tells us about God. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Doesn't that explain a lot of what mystifies you when you look at just wicked people who look blessed? The Heavenly Father does it. He blesses them in hopes that they will repent, that the goodness of God will lead them to repentance. If you love those who love you, big deal, says Jesus. What reward are you going to get for that? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't the pagans do that? Be therefore perfect, which means mature in love, therefore, 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus had strong reasons for feeling as strongly as he did about forgiveness. I'm going to just give you some quotes from some different people I just sort of plucked out of a book that, I, that spoke to me. I think these are great quotes on forgiveness. Catherine Ponder, I don't know who that is, but I like her quote. When you hold resentment toward another, you're bound to that person or condition by an emotional link that is stronger than steel. Forgiveness is the only way to dissolve that link and get free. That person you're mad at or those people, until you forgive them, you're allowing them to control your life. You're allowing them to put a ball and chain around your foot. You're linking them to you. That's powerful stuff. I wish this was not true, but it's true. I wish life was easier, but it's not. Life's not fair a lot of the time, but God is good. Okay? Look at this one. There is no revenge so complete as forgiveness. I like that. Now, Jesus knew that. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Here's another one. I've learned that when you have an argument with your spouse, the first one who says, I'm sorry, I hurt your feelings, please forgive me, is the winner. You ought to have a contest. Who can do it quicker? Amen? All right, here's another one. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you. Amen? Good stuff. Now, Jesus, I want you to notice he practiced what he preached because he taught that in Matthew 5. Now we're jumping way ahead to the end of Matthew, to the end of his life, and now he's practicing what he preached on the cross. Jesus perfectly practiced his own teaching as he hung on the cross by forgiving the people who had falsely accused him and those who were rejoicing at his death, hurling insults at him in his darkest hour. Jesus was a forgiver. Now, a second aspect of Jesus' prayer from the cross is this. As the Messiah of the world, he prayed for people. If you've ever wondered what Jesus is doing right now, is he flinging other stars into space? Well, he might be. I don't know. But I do know this. He's praying for you and me. Listen to what Scripture says. He ever, can you say with me ever? That means always and ever. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He was praying for people when he died on the cross. And if you're a child of God, he's praying for you right now. Can you believe that? Whether or not you feel it, he is. Jesus is interceding for you right now. He's praying that you don't stray. He's praying that you bear fruit for his glory. He's praying you have victory over sin. He's calling your name before God's throne. And what he did on the cross, he's doing right now. You know, can we just thank the Lord for praying for us right now? Lord, I just thank you that you're praying for everyone in this sanctuary right now. You're praying that we don't miss the mark. You're praying for our success. You're praying for our well-being. You're praying for our fruitfulness. You're praying that we're not led into temptation, but that we're delivered from evil. We thank you for your prayers, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let's look at the first relationship that Jesus addressed. 
Here's the first one. The first word from the cross also speaks of forgiveness in the relationship between a holy God and fallen sinners. The first relationship Jesus deals with from the cross is the relationship of we fallen sinners and God. Our relationship with God. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, he was referring specifically to the men who were nailing him to the cross. But these words have a wider application, and we can claim them for ourselves. We really can. They remind us what kind of relationship we have with God. It is a relationship in which we are sinners in need of forgiveness, period. How many of you have had to repent in the last year? And the rest of you, somebody want to come down here and teach that didn't raise your hand? We need to repent all the time, don't we? Now, we have done many things that we should never have done. Sins of commission. And there are many things we should have done, but we never did. Sins of omission. Therefore, the only way we can come to a holy God is by the mercy of his forgiveness. It's the only way. And that's the first relationship he said, he dealt with. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. It had to do with us being reconciled with God. Jesus addressed the most important relationship of all when he said, Father, forgive them. There is no more important relationship than this one. Let me tell you something about the way we're wired. If this one is off, it's going to affect all of these. If the vertical relationship with God is off, the horizontal relationships with people are going to begin to falter, guaranteed. You first got to make it right this way. That relationship with God is the hub of the wheel and all the spokes, all the issues of life, like those old wagon wheels that had the wooden spokes that went out into that great big wheel. The hub is your relationship with God. If it's bad, every spoke, every issue, money, finances, well-being, peace, everything is affected by that hub. But if the hub is right, if it's sound, that relationship is good, all the spokes start getting blessed. Now, I believe that. He's got to be the Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And when he's Lord of all, everything gets blessed. It may take a while, but you'll see everything starting to get blessed. Now, here's the first duty. In one way or another, everything that Jesus did is an example that we're called to follow, not in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, each of these seven last words of Jesus Christ tells us our duty. So what does the first one tell us? The first word about forgiveness tells us our duty to forgive the people who have done us wrong. Is that a word you need to hear today? I mean, we all do. Unless you live alone in total isolation, and you're never around people, and that's nobody I know, you're going to have to practice forgiveness. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Probably at least once a week, you're going to have to forgive somebody something. If nowhere else in rush hour traffic, you're going to have to forgive them. I mean, I can't even watch the news. I don't have to forgive somebody. Amen? If you're married, how many of you in here are married? How many of you want to be? 
No, what I meant, meant was single. I meant single people. I had married people going, I want to be. It's not what I meant. <laughs> Michael and Chris, I, I thought y'all were married. Okay. Then you're going to have to be a good forgiver. Or it's never, ever going to work. Not ever. <laughs> Amen. Now let's look at the second work of Jesus Christ. Then he said, that is the thief on the cross said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Now this is the second work of Jesus. And what was it? Our king. Can you say with me the word king? He's our king. When he promised paradise to the thief who had prayed, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Boy, that thief got a revelation on his cross, didn't he? He turned and looked at Jesus hanging there next to him. How did he know that this was a king with a kingdom? God the Holy Ghost gave him a revelation on that cross. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus, when he said, today you're going to be with me in paradise, today he affirmed his kingship. Now, I got to tell you all something. This is very important. Jesus is a king. He's our king, and that's one of his works. While he was dying, Jesus claimed the right to rule in heaven. If he has the power to promise eternal life, then he must be the king of all kings or he could not promise eternal life. He was either psychotic or he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. By the time Jesus was arrested, if you'll notice reading the Gospels, it was clear to even the casual observer, even Pilate, that he had claimed kingship. The Scripture records this. Pilate summoned Jesus, and what did he ask him? He said, are you the king of the Jews? Are you a king? Now I want you to look at this exchange. Jesus looked at Pilate and he said, is that your own idea, Pilate? Is that your own idea? Or did somebody else talk to you about me and suggest to you that I might be a king? Where'd you get this, Pilate? Where'd you come up with this? And Pilate said, am I a Jew you think I've been cavorting with Jewish people? You think I've been out there hanging around with them where they told me this? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What in the world have you done that they hate you like they do? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now, notice, Jesus didn't deny that he was a king. He said, you've got it. I have a kingdom. I'm a king, and I've got a kingdom. It's not here, but I've got one. Pilate said, ah, then you're a king. Jesus answered, what did he say, everybody? Read it with me. You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. 
everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Wow. So here he tells a great political ruler, you got it, I'm a king and I've got a kingdom. And anybody who really wants the truth will side with me and listen to me. And I can tell you that's true today. You got a lot of people out there in the media, on television, in news, saying, I'm looking for truth. I really want the truth about stuff. But they really don't. Do y'all know how little truth ever really makes its way into our culture? Real truth? Not a whole lot. I mean, real life-changing truth about God and eternity and the things that Jesus talked about. Not much finds its way into our culture. Because our culture isn't really looking for truth. They're looking for their truth, but not the truth. Their truth. Jesus said, people don't come to me because they don't want their dark works exposed. So they avoid me. They avoid the light and they avoid the truth. Truth is a dangerous commodity to walk around with in our day. If you really want to get in trouble, go out there and tell the truth. You can speak a million lies a day and everybody will love you. But you go out there and tell the truth. Tell the truth about Jesus. Tell the truth about God. Tell the truth about the nature of man. You'll be in trouble real quick. Real quick. So though a king, the kingship Jesus modeled is not the kingship we're used to seeing. Have you ever noticed that and thought about that? Jesus said, yep, I'm a king. But wait a minute. He wasn't tyrannical. He wasn't arrogant. And he wasn't cruel. He wasn't like the kings we're used to seeing. He wasn't condescending. He was not elitist in his attitude. Have you ever noticed that when a person is given a uniform or a title, it often changes them immediately? Have you ever noticed that? Jesus was a king, but he didn't act like a king because he wasn't strutting. He wasn't acting like he was a big shot. I'm going to tell you something. Very few people can handle authority successfully. I've seen people I really liked get authority, and I ended up not liking them. I could love them in the Lord, but the authority changed them. All of a sudden, they're strutting around, bossing people around, and you can tell the authority went to their head. But here's where Jesus is so different from other people He's the king of the whole universe. But what do you find Him doing? The king we celebrate today, towards whom every knee will bow, was the monarch who rode into Jerusalem on the equivalent of an old motorcycle. If I'm him, I want to ride into Jerusalem on a white stallion. If it was our day, a high-level Mercedes, here I come. Not Jesus. It was the equivalent of an old motorcycle, an old moped. Here he comes on a lowly donkey, the king. Our king Jesus fills all that there is in heaven and earth. Paul wrote that he's the head over every power and authority. Every power in the universe has to submit to him. Through Jesus, all things were and are made. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. The Bible records that After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven as king. And yet, when he was on earth, 
we see our king humbling himself as a servant, washing the feet of his disciples, touching with compassion the despised leper. We see him going out into the streets in disguise. What do I mean by that? According to his own teaching, he turns up as a street person, a homeless battered woman, or a washed out alcoholic. And he whispers to us that if we care for them, we care for him. He identified with the lowly, the beaten down, the downtrodden, and the defeated, the have-nots. That's our king. He didn't strut. He didn't have to. But I got to tell you, he's a king. Soon, our King Jesus will return to rule the world as a benevolent, righteous, and just king. Amen? John had an open vision of Jesus' mighty return, and he wrote, and I wish you'd read this with me. It's a little bit lengthy, but boy, it's too good to miss. Let's read it. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, say it loud everybody, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our King Jesus. The second work of Jesus from the cross is his revealed kingship. Now let's look quickly at the second relationship. If the first word from the cross shows us a relationship of forgiveness, the second word from the cross shows a relationship of friendship. It tells us that Jesus is our close companion. When the man on the cross, next to Jesus, asked to be remembered in the kingdom of God, Jesus promised him paradiso, paradise, heaven. But he offered him something better. And what I'm about to read... I really do believe this is what makes heaven heaven and hell hell. Here it is. The relationship that makes paradise to be a paradise is Jesus said today, you will be, what everyone, with me. You want to know what's going to make heaven heaven? Jesus. People have said to me, do you really believe there's a burning, fiery hell? Well, I've never been there. I know the Bible uses different illustrations for hell, fire, a place where the worm dies not. But here's what I think is going to make hell, hell. There will be no presence of God. To me, if you want to put me immediately in hell, you take away from me the presence of God. Totally, fully. No presence of God. I believe that's what's going to make hell, hell. If it's burning, that's not the worst of it. If it's a worm that dies not, that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that he's totally absent. 
Now what's going to make heaven heaven? Him. Being with Him. That's what's going to make heaven heaven. The beauty of the person of Jesus Christ. Isn't it a little bit of heaven when you have a little bit of Him right here and now? Isn't He what makes this life endurable? Well, you multiply what you feel now at any given time in your best hour of worship and praise and multiply it to the hundredth power and you still haven't touched heaven. Uninterrupted fellowship in all of its fullness with Jesus. That's what makes heaven heaven. Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you where? To myself. That what, everybody? Where I am, that's where you may be also. I never do a funeral that I don't preach that verse because that's heaven. And if you die with Christ, you go straight into the presence of the Lord and your spirit is with the Lord. To die in Christ is gain. To die without him is hell. The second duty, and we're about to close here, our second duty is to, is to confess our sins and believe in Jesus for salvation. That is what the thief on the cross did. The man that died next to Jesus and heard these blessed words, today you'll be with me in paradise. What did he do to hear those words? He repented. Without repentance, there is no relationship with God. No forgiveness, no atonement, no justification, no salvation. That's why I want to warn you. I want to warn our radio listening audience, our dear friends by radio. Listen to me. There's a message floating around out there now that you don't need to repent. That when Jesus died on the cross, it covered everybody's sin. Everybody is saved. Everybody's redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. I'm going to tell you that is a doctrine of demons because you've got to repent. If you don't repent, you've missed the message of the gospel. Watch this. The first word John the Baptist preached, and he opened up the New Testament. There he is preaching at the riverside. What did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His baptism ministry was called the baptism of repentance. Mark 1.3 says, so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Sins aren't covered unless you repent. Jesus preached repentance. After John was put in prison, Mark tells us in chapter 1 verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Then what did Jesus say? Repent and believe the good news. That's what Jesus said. Then you come to the day of Pentecost after the Spirit of God fell. Peter stood and told the stunned crowd, read it with me, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And 3,000 people repented. What must we do to be saved? He said, repent. You can't let go of repentance. As the thief on the cross did, we too must repent. And we learn this in the second saying of Jesus and what happened between him and this thief. He makes the same promise to anybody who's sorry for sinning and comes to him in faith. So let's stand together 
And let's just read in summary these last two utterances. What were they? The word of forgiveness as he who prays for us and the word of salvation as the king who opens heaven's door. You know, I want to pray for you. I want to pray, don't let an offense stick. And I want to pray, don't pick up somebody else's offense. Um, have the Teflon response and let it go. It's not easy to do. I'm going to tell you, I'm probably worse at it than most of you. But I have to do it. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. Uh, don't walk around carrying somebody else's offense. Let it go. God wants to bless you. You're not doing the person whose offense you're carrying any favor. You're enabling them to continue with the offense because now you're carting it for them. You're not helping them. And you're not helping yourself to not forgive an offense. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we just thank you right now tonight for your blessing. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death on the cross and these first two utterances that came from your mouth dealing with such crucial issues of life. Lord, help us to glorify you. Help us to walk in repentance. Help us to walk in forgiveness. Help us to walk free. In Jesus' name. Now, in closing, I want you to take a minute. If you need to say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I give up an offense. Lord, I'll let this offense go. Do it. Take a minute to pray. Thank you, Lord. 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 In Jesus' name. Amen. If you needed this tonight, give the Lord a hand and you're dismissed. God bless you. We got fellowship out there and uh, food, so have a great evening. Hang around in fellowship. God bless all of you. See you Sunday.